Hello and welcome to IFAS podcast on international and European affairs. My name is Louis Mourier and today we are discussing the current situation in Estonia, a small but important country at the EU's eastern flank that has experienced some considerable political turmoil in the past months. In fact, very recently, the Estonian government collapsed and this happened in a country that has long been seen by many outsiders as one of the most stable and successful transition economies in Eastern Europe. So during our discussion, we would like to have a look back into what happened in Estonia recently, what it means for Estonia's relations with the EU and what we can expect in the next months. And for that, I'm happy that I'm joined by two speakers. First of all, Julian Strand, IFAS Regional Director for Europe. And secondly, someone who actually comes from Estonia itself and works there as a freelance journalist. Julian, can you tell our listeners who will be our guest today? Hi, everybody. Today we're uh, joined by Michael, who is uh, Estonian. Uh, he's a student in uh, his first master's year at the University of Tartu, studying international relations. And since the summer of 2020, he has been working at Esti Pavelet, which is one of the major newspaper outlets in the country in the international news department, first as an intern. And now he is covering international news for the same newspaper as a freelancer. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, very much looking forward to the conversation. Um, but Michael, um, since you work as a journalist, uh, we would like to start off with a short input on the current state of freedom of press before we engage with Estonian affairs. Uh, Julien, many have said that during COVID-19, there has been a considerable democratic backsliding. Can you tell us a bit, uh, what's the status of freedom of press at the very moment? So today I wanted to talk about the freedom of the press because I felt like it is a subject that can easily be forgotten. Uh, behind every political scandal that makes the headlines, we should always be aware of the fact that, first and foremost, the reason we have access to such information is because we have, at least in free countries, access to a free, unmuzzled media. Now, that is not the case for everybody in the world, and the worrying thing is that this freedom has been diminishing for the past years. At least when looking at the yearly reports by Reporters Without Borders, a prominent NGO in the field, between their first yearly review in 2013 and the most recent one, which came out last December in 2020, there has been a clear drop in press freedom worldwide. According to another study on the safety of journalists, which was published by UNESCO in 2020, on average, during the past decade, on a worldwide scale, one journalist was murdered every four days. And let's restate why it's important, although it should sound obvious. The freedom of the press is a fundamental human right under Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. We're at a point where populism and autocratic regimes have been on the rise for years, and we're amidst an unprecedented global pandemic. Taken together, you have really a perfect cocktail to curtail press freedom. And that is exactly what happened in the past few months. The novel coronavirus has definitely had a big impact on that. In many countries, the emergency laws that were passed and the measures adopted by governments to stop the propagation of the virus have become an alibi to further curtail the freedom of the media. This has been the case, for instance, in China, right at the outbreak of the pandemic, but also in Hungary, where the emergency law gave significantly more power to the government. 
If you want to know more about these issues, I can only recommend the tool that has been developed by Reporters Without Borders called Tracker 19. That's Tracker underscore 19, which collects data on the arresting of journalists who are investigating on the pandemic. According to the NGO, due to COVID, arrests and detentions have been multiplied by four during the last year. Speaking out against governmental mismanagement of the pandemic has thus become costly, and in some places, ideas went into lockdown the same way people did. Talking about lockdown, in its last yearly report, Reporters Without Borders also points to the fact that today, around 400 journalists in the world are still in prison for unjustified reasons. 67% of those are concentrated in five countries, with China way ahead, followed by Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam and Syria. Turning to Europe, the degradation of the freedom of the press has been particularly stark in its eastern parts, with illiberal governments trying to get a hold of the public opinion. Laurin Schütting of the European Centre for Press and Media Freedom, an NGO which monitors threats to independent journalism, was recently quoted in the Financial Times saying, I quote, What we've been seeing is a progressive dismantling of media freedoms. At times it is a frantic backsliding, at other times it is slower. But the direction is clear, and at the moment it is frantic. End of quote. There have been a number of worrying evolutions in the past year in countries such as Slovenia, Croatia, Poland, Bulgaria, or Hungary. Viktor Orban, Prime Minister of Hungary, has been a pioneer for years in undermining the press, buying up private media outlets, and taking control of public channels. In early February 2021, just a few days ago, one of the last independent broadcasters was turned off. The reason was that the broadcasting license was not granted extension. It is thus not very surprising that the country is ranked 89 out of 180 by Reporters Without Borders. A very worrying drop in press freedom has been observed in Poland in the same yearly report. The country is now ranked 62 out of 180. For comparison, in 2015, the year the current government came into power, it was still ranked 18th. That's a drop of 44 spots in the ranking. This year, the government introduced a new tax on media, which was geared towards redistributing money from the outlets to the government to fuel its pandemic relief. The media companies described this as extortion and an attempt to liquidate their funding. Other economic sectors that have been less impacted by the pandemic have not been targeted. So on the 10th of February 2021, When Polish people turned into private media channels, most of them, instead of playing the usual music or information, were broadcasting the following message. I quote, Poland's government seeks to destroy the independent media. We are protesting so that you can convince yourself what Poland will look like without independent media. We apologize to you, our listeners and business partners, for the change to today's schedule. But we have no choice. End quote. This message ran for 24 hours, but we should keep it in mind for much longer, as a stark reminder that freedom of speech should not be taken for granted. It is up to us to uphold it, even during difficult times, such as a global pandemic. Thank you very much, Julien. Um, I think this was, was a very concerning statement, actually. Um, listening to you uh, made me remember how difficult the situation is for, for many journalists across the world. Um, and unfortunately, also in some parts of the EU, especially in the eastern parts. 
But what a fantastic coincidence then um, that we have a journalist on board today um, and also someone who's actually coming from, uh, from Eastern Europe. Um, let's turn to you, uh, Michael, and let's turn to, to Estonia. And perhaps you can also say something about what's happening at the moment in Estonia in general, um, um, but also what's going on when it comes to press. I mean, do we have similar developments um, in Estonia as we have them um, in Eastern Europe, in other parts of Eastern Europe, as Julien just mentioned? And so, Michael, um, over to you. Um, Estonia is widely perceived among the most successful transition economies in Eastern Europe. In the past, some even saw it as a primary example for economic growth and democratization. Um, so can you tell us what exactly is the situation in the country? Uh, why did the government collapse in, in January? And do we have similar developments in Estonia when it comes to the dismantling of freedom of press as we have it in Poland and in Hungary? Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So regarding uh, your introductory topic of press freedom, Estonia is quite an outlier in, uh, in uh, the broader Eastern European region. It is uh, in the World Press Freedom Index, it is, for example, above even Iceland and Canada. But I would say that the trends are not looking so good. So I think in recent years, what has uh, shaped uh, the Press Freedom Index negatively is the fact that large part of um, free media is... Uh, going into the control of one businessman who is mm, described by some as even an oligarch. I wouldn't be making such designations myself, but okay, that's uh, whoever wants to make them can make them. And uh, one party who was recently in government has recently attacked journalists, refused to take some outlets questions in press conferences and generally, let's say, supporting the sentiment that uh, some journalists are not objective and have a political interest in covering their topics. Now that party is uh, the Conservative Estonian People's Party, or ECRE, as its uh, acronym is in Estonian. And ECRE was, for almost two years, was uh, in government in a three-party coalition, but that government uh, collapsed at the beginning of the year. And, well, I guess that's the reason why I'm on this podcast to, to help you dissect this interesting topic. Yeah, so, so, so what exactly happened then in this crisis? Can you provide us some insights? Yeah, so as I'd imagine, uh, most of your uh, listeners don't have that much knowledge about uh, Estonian politics, and that's understandable. I mean, <laughs> I think we have to assume that, right? <laughs> yeah, Estonia is just a country of 1.3 million people. But I guess uh, to understand things, you would need to look at the recent history of Estonia, especially the political history. Now, uh, if we go back in time to 2019, well, uh, in spring, Estonia had uh, legislative elections to the parliament. And the election was quite convincingly won by the Reform Party, which is a center-right uh, liberal pro-European party. And the other larger party with uh, which it competed was the center party, which is also quite centrist, more maybe center-left and maybe a bit more liberal than conservative. And the opinion polls showed that these two parties were uh, doing quite evenly, and it was well a matter of uh, a matter of just uh, who gets the edge on election day and wins. But the result was that the Reform Party had uh, 33 seats in Parliament, the Centre Party had 26, so they won quite convincingly. Now the Centre Party was uh, prior to elections in coalition with the Social Democrats and the Fatherland Party. So 
quite a broad coalition. It had a center-left party, sort of centrist party, and a center-right party. But that coalition of three parties did not get the votes to form another coalition. It had less than 50% of the votes. And, uh, well, after the election, Reform Party won, so everyone expected them to form the new government. However, the leader of the center party and the prime minister, Yuri Ratas, had other thoughts. And in fact, the only way by which he could have stayed in power was to uh, form a coalition with the center-right and the far-right party. So many analysts saw uh, that the inclusion of a far-right party, ECRE, into government was due to the prime minister's wish to continue as prime minister, as it was the only way to get over 50% of the seats in parliament. So in 2019, we got a coalition of three parties, the Centre Party, the Fatherland Party, and the Conservative People's Party. Now that uh, coalition governed Estonia for almost two years, and it had a lot of scandals uh, during its time in power. I think we can discuss them afterwards. I can give you a brief overview. But uh, let's say, uh, on average, maybe once a month, uh, a scandal which would have seriously harmed any other coalition beforehand. But since the will to stay in power of all those three parties was so strong, it sort of lasted uh, a lot longer than I expected to. For example, I had, let's say, during that, Almost two years, I had like three or four moments when I was convinced that now is the time that this coalition will fall, but they managed to get through it. Until at the beginning of the year, the uh, defense police and the attorney general's office announced that uh, they were starting a new uh, criminal investigation. And uh, involved was uh, the secretary general of the prime minister's party, the prime minister's party itself, and then the advisor to the leader of the far-right party. They were uninvolved, and that caused the government to collapse. And I'm happy to help open that uh, criminal investigation as well, if you'd like to hear about that. Yes, yes, please. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty interested to hear, um, I mean, why exactly did they open that case? I mean, this must be quite serious, right, to, uh, to open such an investigation when it concerns um, some of the most powerful and most important politicians in the country. Yeah. So uh, the affair revolved around a real estate development in the center of Tallinn and uh, real estate is owned by a prominent Estonian businessman who has uh, in history donated a lot of money to political parties and uh, even been embroiled in some scandals about uh, that uh, donated money being uh, sort of used to get decisions which would be useful to him. And this is not, he didn't just give money to one party, he has donated in history a lot of money to a lot of parties. And uh, as the Attorney General's office uh, revealed, he had promised to give, I think the sum was up to a million euros to the center party, who is also in power in Tallinn, who can make those municipal decisions uh, in order to to get the government approved loan to help finance his developments and then also get some uh, beneficial services from the city, which would be cheaper. And then also involved, who was also supposed to get some uh, financial aid from, from the businessman was Gerti Graft, who is an advisor and very close ally of Martin Helme, who is the leader of the Conservative People's Party. And uh, Ms. Graft worked as uh, an advisor to the finance minister. And uh, from then, uh, events transpired 
the center party had a really lengthy discussion. I think it was uh, their leadership was in a meeting for like 15 or 16 hours. They decided uh, what is the next step. Obviously, someone has to take some political responsibility. And for them, the choice was, do we... Well, I think it was quite clear that uh, the trust had been so eroded in that government that this government was uh, doomed to collapse. But for them, the choice was, do we want to form another coalition and be a junior partner there with the Reform Party? Or should we uh, go to the opposition and continue our work there? They argued there for a lot of time. And then the decision was made, okay, we want to stay in power. So we're going to form a coalition with the Reform Party. And that is now the coalition that, that is in power. The other junior partners in the previous coalition really wanted the old con coalition to continue, but it was quite, quite clear a day after the revelations that uh, that would not be the case. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, that's really interesting. I think I've learned more about Estonia in the last 25 minutes than I, than I did in, the last, um, in my previous 26 years. So thank you very much for that. Um, but I would like to pick up one thing that you mentioned, and that's the role of ECRE, the extreme right-wing party that was part of the government. Um, can you tell us a bit more about ECRE? Um, are they comparable to other Eastern European right-wing players, such as Fidesz um, or PiS? Um, and what exactly did they do in government? You mentioned um, a number of scandals that emerged. Yeah, so ECRE is... Uh quite an uh, object in itself. Uh, I think comparisons with other uh, far-right parties in Europe are, are adequate. Uh, I think uh, general uh, uh, discourse around populist parties uh, is similar. I mean, uh, uh, for example, comparisons with Fidesz and Peace in Poland are, uh, are good comparisons, I think, and there's a lot of similarities, also some differences, which uh, I will touch upon a bit later. But yeah, I would say that the sort of scandals I mentioned before uh, were really what brought a new, a new political style and new political culture in Estonia. I think every month you had something which just wouldn't have happened beforehand or would have caused the government to collapse. Now, uh, I tried to, before this podcast, when I was preparing, I tried to think of all the, all the scandals which happened to like give you an overview. And I'm pretty sure I have missed some, <laughs> but uh, just to give you like a hint of what the people heading the party are like. For example, the previous finance minister and now leader of the party, Martin Helme, then before joining the government, once famously said about Estonia's immigration policy that it should be based on the sentence, when they're black, send them back. So you can sort of understand the sentiment. Now, I guess that their, their coalition partners expected that, okay, they can scream as much as they want in opposition, but if we take them into government, they'll have to start behaving in a civilized way. Well, I don't think that was really a case. I think uh, what's happened instead was that uh, other partners, their rhetoric started to move towards the rhetoric of, of the far-right party. Now, this government was uh, plagued by a lot of scandals and also a lot of resi resignations. Uh, the first victim of the government came only on the second day. So one day after after taking uh, the oath of office, the Minister for T Trade and IT resigned because uh, the police started a criminal investigation because there were allegations of uh, domestic violence against him. So uh, one day uh, he gave an oath and this uh, second day he had to resign due to pressure. Now that court case police seems to be quite, quite, quite um, occupied with uh, politicians in, in Estonia. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there's, I think that case is still in court. And uh, 
well, let's see what happens. But uh, the allegations seemed, seemed quite serious. Then there was a lot of, let's say, labeling and even uh, offensive terminology. For example, uh, Mart Helme, who was the previous uh, leader of the party and the father of Martin, Martin Helme, uh, called the Estonian president, Kersti Kaljulaid, an emotionally heated woman in a press conference. So it was rhetoric like that, which was quite, uh, quite usual for the far-right party. Then uh, the, the same, <laughs> same uh, minister managed to cause an international scandal at the end of 2019, when Sanna Marin became the prime minister of Finland, well, she kind of dismissed her credentials and said, well, she's just a sales girl. What does she know? And that uh, created a lot of tensions between Estonia and Finland, which made the president apologize to Finland, made the prime minister apologize. And then the only one who sort of didn't apologize was the man who actually said those words. And these apologies by the president and prime minister actually became quite common. That wasn't the first or last instance in which others had to apologize for the far right party. Uh, for example, also in the summer of 2019, Martin Helme, the son who was finance minister, but uh, fulfilling the duties of his father, the interior minister who was on vacation, tried to dismiss the head of police in Estonia just because they thought, well, he's not fulfilling our interests. Well, I'm going to dismiss him. Turned out he didn't actually have the authority and the prime minister apologized to the head of police who is still in power now. What else? Uh, the minister for agriculture had to resign due to his close advisor being in a conflict of interest. Then the second trade and IT minister after the guy who resigned due to the criminal investigation, she resigned also because uh, it turned out she lied in front of the parliament. I think it was... Uh, she. Uh, she was really not competent for the job. For example, she was uh, like a minister for foreign trade, but said that uh, she, I think, didn't speak any foreign languages and said that uh, she doesn't need to go on foreign visits. Uh, her priorities are in, uh, I don't know, domestic economic growth. I mean, all of that sounds, all of that sounds pretty, um, let's call it impressive. I mean, within two or three years, right, and, and such a number of, of, um, of political scandals, I think it's, it's not taken, it's extraordinary to, to, to a certain degree. If I can, I'd just like add two more important scandals, which I didn't touch upon earlier. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. So uh, at the end of last year, the Mart Helme, who was the interior minister, gave an interview to Deutsche Welle. He was asked about uh, LGBT rights, and he said that uh, uh, in Estonia, the gays should run to Sweden because they're more liberal there. Then there was a huge uproar here in Estonia. And then he clarified that well, the interview, I think, was given in Russian. He clarified that his Russian is a bit rusty. And he actually meant to say, no, I didn't mean the gays should run to Sweden. I said, well, the gays should run around in Sweden, as if that made a huge difference. And that caused uh, another governmental crisis which culminated with the uh, leaders of the three parties uh, signing a document uh, in which were two paragraphs of Estonia's constitution, one of which was nobody will be discriminated against, and the second one was everyone has a right to free speech. So basically we're saying we can say whatever we want about the case, that, is, that should be our free speech right. And maybe even a more important scandal was uh, just three weeks later when the interior minister said in, I think there's a like quite famous weekly radio show that the father and son Helme do. I think it translates some, to something like, let's talk about things. 
And there they said that, well, it was five days after the US presidential elections. They said, well, Joe Biden is a corrupt scumbag. He didn't win the election. They cheated. Trump is, is actually the winner. As the US is the, seen as the primary ally of Estonia, the guarantor of our security, that <laughs> three weeks later caused another uh, governmental crisis. And that ended with, uh, with Martelme resigning, saying that, okay, I understand that I can some, say some things in political office, but then, then I'll resign so I can keep saying those things. And that was the last major scandal, scandal of the government, before the scandal around the real estate development, of course. So thank you very much, Michael, for, for that overview. Um, very interesting. Um, but I just wondered, now that ICRE is out of government, uh, will that be a blow for right-wing populism in Estonia? Or do you expect that um, they will remain kind of a key actor in Estonian politics um, in the upcoming years? Yeah, uh, they will uh, 100% remain as an important factor in Estonian politics. Although we might now see an emergence of a cordon sanitaire towards the party, uh, which I thought at least existed beforehand. The prime minister who included them in the coalition uh, a few months prior to the elections had said, we won't cooperate with them, yet he did. So we'll see. But uh, one thing is for certain, ECRE is here to stay. They have quite stable level of support, around 20%, maybe 15 to 20%. And now that they are not in government, they can sort of uh, up their rhetoric to a new level. Nothing's finding them that much. They can be angry. They can uh, they can scream as much as they want. And uh, to tell you, um, to tell you, uh, maybe a sad truth, but ECRE is the party which has guided the public discussion in Estonia for a long time. They can say or do something every couple of weeks to cause outrage, and uh, this uh, seems to be an intentional strategy of the party. For example, when Martin Helme gave a speech in London to talk about their success, he said that uh, they control the agenda in Estonia in a classical manner. They provoke, escalate and improvise. If you say something, everyone starts running around and screaming and they fundamentally won't apologize. Then there will be a scandal. All the media will be covering. They have to cover the scandal when a large party says or does something, especially if that party is in government. And then after the scandal is over, no one has apologized. The dust settles and the political debate is widened and we have achieved that. He has also said that he enjoys uh, when the left-wingers are in spasms and uh, suffocate within their own anger, something which, uh, which is good for them. And for Ekre, politics is like an everyday battle. You fight for, for media attention, you fight for you know, just being talked about. So I'm sure that Ekre's uh, strong uh, support will continue to grow. I mean, the first time they gained entry into the parliament was in 2015. They got seven seats, then in 2019, 18 seats. So basically tripled their seats within four years. But there seems to be a glass ceiling for their support. I don't think they can grow their support much more if they continue with the same rhetoric. Let's see if what other, uh, how other factors such as COVID or economic uh, regrowth uh, influences that. But uh, maybe one demographic by which they could expand their support would maybe be the Russian-speaking minority. Although publicly they seem to be quite anti-Russian, but having such a strong set of, say, conservative or Christian values, I would say that the one area where they could expand their support is by the sort of conservative Russian voters who don't want the LGBT rights to be promoted or whatever like that. That's, re that, that's really interesting. Thank you very much for your comments. Um, but I just wondered... 
given all the political scandals that you mentioned and given all that everything that happened in the past years under the co-leadership of ECRE, I would assume that this probably also had an impact on Estonia's engagement with Brussels. So, you know, the EU. Um, how did the participation of a right-wing party in government affect Estonia's relations with the EU in the past years? And what are the consequences of the government collapse that we have seen in Estonia recently uh, for Estonia's role in the European Union? Yeah, so I think in an official sense, not much changed when Ekre came into power. However, I think the changes should be analyzed in a more, let's say, unofficial setting. When you keep insulting your neighbors, you keep insulting your allies, then what sort of result does it give? I mean, the foreign minister still went to the Foreign Affairs Council and talked about, you know, in Brussels about the future of Europe, I think, in the same way. But but it's these little things like, what do you gain by insulting the prime minister of Finland, who is the closest neighbor of Estonia? What do you do by insulting the president of uh, of the US, which is the strongest guarantor of, of our security and the strongest partner in NATO? I think it's uh, those things which affect it, uh, Estonia's relations the most. I think that internationally, especially within the EU, sort of uh, leaders of the EU institutions will realize that that now uh, different parties are in power and they understand that maybe we don't have to do that much to restore our good standing. It's just that what happened in the meantime was a blip and now we're now it's like business as usual. But one thing uh, which I could note about ECRA as well, if we compare them with other populist parties in Europe, they seem to be more conspiratorial. They seem to promote this sort of conspiracy theories and they seem to be more pro-Trump. When Trump was in power and even now, there was, uh, I think, even an official support group for President Trump was formed in the parliament of Estonia, mainly or even only ECRE members. And, uh, well, this sentiment of has been repeated many times, uh, even now, gets thrown out by ECRE politicians that, well, the elections were stolen in the US. They weren't fair elections. Even with... Uh, collapse of government, there were conspiracy theories that the attorney general's office and the defense police are, you know, part of the deep state who wanted to sort of destroy our working government. And another factor was that they planned to do a referendum on the status of marriage in Estonia. And that was supposed to be agreed on a few days after the government actually collapsed, which was quite interesting. And they saw it as sort of the security apparatus just uh, making domestic policy decisions by, by the, themselves, basically. But with uh, Estonia standing in the EU, I think not much has uh, changed during these two years. So, yeah. You mentioned um, NATO and basically provide us an insight on Estonia's foreign policy, which I think most people not talk about much, um, at least in the in the Brussels bubble. Uh, um, but actually, Estonia is a really important country, right? It's directly at the border to Russia, one of the EU's most difficult external partners slash rivals. And Russia actually has interfered, as far as I'm concerned, uh, substantially in Estonian affairs in the past. Um, I think it has tried to maintain its security influence in the region, sometimes even with military sable rattling, for example, by intruding into NATO airspace. Um, the, given the current instability or the current uncertainty that we have in Estonia, will that be used by Russia to further destabilize the region or to further interfere into um, Estonian affairs? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, but uh, that really isn't a concern for anyone here in Estonia. The situation is, I would say, really stable here at the moment. And with regards to any 
potential military threat. I think that hasn't been seriously in the air since maybe the 2014 events in Crimea and Donbass started. I mean, on a security basis, everything is the same. Security is, I would say, the one issue in Estonia in which there is a broad coalition across parties. Every party in parliament supports Estonia being a member of NATO, supports the high level of defense spending, which is, uh, has for years been over the 2% uh, requirement of NATO. So I don't see any way uh, in which the uh, domestic policy of Estonia or s- some turmoil domestically would uh, give such an opportunity for Russia to meddle in the affairs. Thank you, Mihail. But uh, also, I was thinking when you just said that Russia might not be a threat in the sense that it will invade Estonia in the, in the coming years. But from what I've seen, there have been a lot of cyber attacks on Estonia from Russia's side. And Estonia also hosts a NATO center of excellence on cybersecurity. Estonia's uh, government and society is pretty forward-thinking in regards to digitization. How would you assess that? Do you feel like there's a lot of interference from Russia in Estonian society, be it through hacking or trying to nudge the public debate through fake news, bot accounts, stuff like that? Yeah, fake news uh, is quite an issue. I mean... uh... Not sure if they still operate, but at some time the Sputnik News uh, organization was was active in Estonia. Um, Maybe wrong, but I think uh, the government banned it operating in Estonia. But well, there is the promoting of fake news, especially when it comes to, for example, now very relevant uh, the vaccine uh, and vaccination. Uh, I mean, promoting. There are a lot of Russian-speaking Estonians who just fundamentally won't take, for example, the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines, they they go to the doctor's office and say, well, we want the Sputnik vaccine. So that is, I would say, maybe the clearest example of sort of Russian measures uh, measures in Estonia. But uh, with regards to hacking, I'm pretty sure that the general public doesn't have much knowledge about that. And that's a question for the, for the security apparatus. But it's not the topic which is sort of widely covered in Estonia now. So I don't think that's really a large threat coming in that sense. Thank you very much, uh, Mirkel. So let's take then the opportunity um, to look a bit in the future. Um, we had this, and we had the government collapse in, in Estonia, um, and um, the big question is, what will come now? I mean, like, how will the new government be composed? Uh, can we expect uh, that they have enough democratic le- legitimacy, uh, given that they have not been elected, direct, um, um, at least not for this, for the, for the, for this government? Um, so, what's the future in Estonia? What's the next step? So, I would say the most interesting thing about the government change is that, well, before there was a coalition of three parties. Of those three parties, uh, one party got directly implicated in a criminal investigation and then that government collapsed. Now the only party with the criminal investigation implication is the only one from that coalition which is also part of the new coalition so it's like quite interesting. But uh, well regarding democratic legitimacy now the two largest parties in Estonia from the coalition they have more seats in parliament than the previous coalition Yeah, I would say it's maybe even more of a legitimate government than the one before. The new government has been in power now for, I think, about a month. 
And what was quite a surprise for me was that they tried to include new people in politics. They included several experts as ministers, for example, the new foreign minister, former diplomat and a former Estonian ambassador. And an ex-police prefect is the new interior minister. So it's uh, refreshing to see uh, new people who are actually experts in their field, not just uh, political veterans. And uh, the new government is also gender, uh, gender balanced which is uh, quite interesting since uh, I think in the last government it started with just two women out of 15. Now there's seven women. What will uh, maybe hinder the role of the new government is that suspicions of corruption regarding the Centre Party are still around. The Secretary General of the party resigned. There are still some questions around his exact role. There are questions what the previous Prime Minister, who is still the party leader, who will soon become the Speaker of the Parliament, Yuri Ratas, what was his role in all of this? I guess we'll know more when the criminal investigation has been on for, for some time. And... Uh, these aren't the only suspicions of corruption around the Centre Party. They've had a lot of issues with financing. I think in the summer they accepted a 50,000 euro donation from a woman whose husband was an entrepreneur who also had some interests with dealing with the city government in Tallinn. And now the, a new criminal investigation was, was started regarding the number two in the Centre Party, who is a close ally of the leader, Miles Reps, who in the previous government was the Minister for Education, but had to resign since she, it turned out she was basically the driver who was supposed to drive her around, uh, used to take her kids to school, and uh, it turned, now it has turned out she, uh, she took a really expensive coffee machine from the ministry and took it home for private use, so the police have started a criminal investigation around that. So it's interesting to see what, what happens with all of those uh, suspicions. But mainly the new government, well, they have to deal with the COVID crisis. And I don't believe that until the next elections, which are in two years' time, I don't think they'll... They have said that they won't uh, take any new uh, intensive initiatives. They'll just try to get the COVID crisis solved, and that's it. And then after the next elections, then I can uh, maybe take some new steps. They have said that they won't go uh, changing the tax system. Everything will remain the same. Taxes are usually the big issue before elections. And yeah, with the COVID crisis, it currently seems quite dangerous here in Estonia. We're now the second highest infected country in Europe. The government uh, announced new measures a few days ago, but... Uh, now the the measures are quite relaxed. I think maybe even one of the most relaxed in Europe, and that's now now they're paying the price for it. So I think that how Estonia recovers from the COVID crisis that will be sort of it can be a success story for this government, but it, it can also be the thing which uh, causes their support to diminish. Now, regarding to any other political changes, I think that stronger relations with the EU will be a part of the new government's agenda, I think that the, the changing rhetoric, which I mentioned before, that would be a huge uh, part in this. Now other countries are seen as allies, not maybe competition or, or something like that. But nothing substantial will change in Estonian foreign policy, who we'll still remain a member of NATO and the EU and a committed member who is interested, actively interested in participating in these organizations. But yet yeah, the substance of relations with allies will be different. I'm pretty sure that the new ministers won't be insulting heads of state of other countries and other things like that. And that's pretty good news, right? <laughs> for, for the EU's internal coherence and, and engagement. Thank you very much, Michael, for, for all of these very, very interesting thoughts. Um, I think you gave our listeners some very good food for thought and 
some very good insights on where Estonia is standing at the moment and what will happen, what might happen in, in the future. But the idea of this podcast is actually not only to talk about um, very interesting thematic topics, but also to engage with career opportunities and to show our listeners what is out there basically um, in the future. And Julien, um, I know this is also a topic that's very interesting for, for you. And I think you prepared some very interesting questions when it comes to um, Mikkel's um, engagement as a journalist. Exactly. Um, thank you, Michael, for all of your comments on Estonian politics. That was very, very insightful. And I think it showed a great bit also that you've extensively worked on these topics, but also that you have the, dare I say, the methodology, the thinking of a journalist when you, when you approach uh, these topics. So you have interned at one of the biggest Estonian newspapers in the Department for International News. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience and what did you learn? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, if I started listing out everything I learned, then that would take a lot of time. But let's see. Let's start. I think maybe a starting point is that I have had uh, no sort of formal uh, experience in journalism beforehand whatsoever. I actually did my bachelor's degree in physics beforehand, and I spent uh, 11 months doing uh, mandatory military service in Estonia. I really hadn't thought about a career in journalism before, but then I saw a job offer that AST Pavalet was looking for summer interns. And I thought, well, I read a lot of foreign news. I should maybe give it to go. Luckily, I got the possibility of interning there. And I think uh, the most important things I learned were about uh, what does the Estonian reader care about? There is so much happening in the world. There is a lot of news. But I think as a foreign policy journalist in Estonia, you should try to think about sort of what the reader would be interested in. Not every topic is really that interesting for the average Estonian newspaper reader. And there were a lot of ideas uh, where I thought that it would be a really interesting article, but then uh, some of the higher-ups would say, well, no, no one actually cares about this. Interesting. And so you've continued working there as a freelancer after your internship, but you're also currently studying international relations. So how do you think your work complements the things you learn in university and how does it affect how you experience the stuff you study? So I would say that uh, due to me being a freelance journalist, uh, I have to keep up with world affairs. So I read a lot of uh, news as well. And I would say that that complements my studies. So if I read a lot, then I have knowledge about what's going on in the world. So for example, when I'm writing my papers, I can bring some examples from around the world. I, I have a, yeah, I know what's, uh, what's going on in different places of the world. But uh, when it comes to writing, I would say that uh, journalistic writing is something completely different than academic writing. Uh, the format is different. The style uh, of my writing is different. I can allow myself to be you know, more free and have more juicier wording when I'm writing an article to the newspaper rather than an academic paper. But yeah, I mean, the Estonian reader doesn't care about uh, what different schools of international relations have to say for, let's say, what's going on with Russia. But I cannot uh, go into detail about, you know, for example, let's take the case of Navalny in Russia. If I would uh, write an article to the newspaper about it, it would be completely different. It would be, you know, sort of uh, documenting what has gone through 
and so on. If I was writing a research paper towards that, it would have, you know, very strict methodology and I'd have to cover basically everything differently. So if journalism is so different, um, what do you think makes good journalism? So what is a good article to you? And do you have any writing techniques or tips for a listener who would be interested in, in such writing? I think there's a difference between, uh, let's say, international news and domestic news and the other genres, uh, you know, like investigative reporting and, and so on. But I would say what makes a good foreign news article, I'd say it depends on, uh, depends on the paper you're writing to, it depends uh, on the country you're living in. I'd say in Estonia, uh, for the for Bavalet, uh, I'd say every day the newspaper publishes like two substantive articles about foreign news but there are a lot more than two events happening every day in the world so i'd say you have to choose uh, your topics very carefully and uh, again i'd reiterate the sort of a factor of knowing who your readers are what your readers are interested in so as i'm myself primarily interested in the middle east well I'd like it a lot if uh, every day I could publish something on hap what's happening in Middle Eastern politics. Well, I just cannot do that. So uh, I'd say knowing your readers and then um, you can write a lot more than the word limit you're given. But you have to be really thorough in thinking what goes in the article and what doesn't go in the article. And with regards to writing tips, I when I sometimes struggled with writing my strategy was just to write down everything I thought of and then then just edit it afterwards. I think it's it's quite common to do do it like that. And it uh, helped me a lot with, uh, with some issues I had when I just thought that that I couldn't get the article finished. But then, yeah, in the end, I could. Interesting. So what what is it like to to get an article done at the right moment? Do you often stay up late at night to finish your articles so that they can be published the following day? Or do you prefer writing really reflected journalism that is a bit more further away from hot topics so that you have more time to process them? So when I was interning during the summer, I had to mainly cover the sort of, well, let's say daily news or stuff uh, happening uh, right now, right here. That added some constraints sometimes to topics which I wanted to cover. But now that I'm working as a freelancer, I'm not even quite sure on the exact day my article gets published. So I, I now uh, tend to write more of this uh, analytical pieces on uh, broader topics and themes, which are maybe not so relevant for today, but, you know, for, for maybe a longer period. I've also uh, done a few interviews. Uh, I think one of my highlights was interviewing the foreign minister of Estonia. So I've also, when I was interning, I managed to take part in a press conference with the three Baltic foreign ministers and the foreign minister of Germany, got to ask a question there. So, yeah, but now I'm more focused on uh, writing more in-depth analytical pieces and uh, I think I even enjoy writing those more than the sort of covering, let's say, the news. Thank you, Michael. That's that's actually really interesting. And uh, when you mentioned that you had the chance to do an interview um, with the foreign minister, I mean that's pretty extraordinary and very and 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 a big success success for you personally. But I just wondered, since you mentioned all the positive sides of being a journalist, is there also something negative to the job that uh, you can perhaps uh, elude on a bit? Well, yeah, it depends. I guess the sort of quite strict deadlines uh, regarding the article, since, well, the paper needs to be <laughs> delivered by early morning to the people. So there is a really strict deadline to when you have to get your articles done. 
And uh, I guess maybe relating to the topic you started on, which was press freedom, there was one sort of incident where I was writing and it was more of like investigative reporting, but uh, I got uh, sort of backlash from a politician who was uh, a minister. Actually, at the time, I was uh, asking some uncomfortable questions, uh, but uncomfortable to her because of her controversial actions. She she like didn't agree to answer my questions and... No, she didn't like directly insult me, but hinted that I was asking very unprofessional questions, but which I didn't think were unprofessional and got into, <laughs> started like uh, arguing on the telephone. But uh, so I would say that that was maybe the one of the downsides. I, I mean, it's not often that you are in a situation where you sort of have to press a minister for questions and they don't want to answer and they're questioning your pro- professionalism. So I would, I would bring that out as an example. So the minister was basically criticizing you for doing your job. <laughs> yeah, she was criticizing me for asking legitimate questions. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to have good journalists to, that, that make sure uh, uh, that the right people get the, the tough questions for which, of course, they are uncountable to, to answer properly. Maybe I'll add one thing more. Like, it's uh, quite uh, unique that that article actually was published as like front page news that day. So it was also like... Uh, quite a big deal for me personally as well to firstly to stumble upon that thing to write about and then write a big article which uh, like gained a lot of traction in in the media that day as well that that's pretty cool and very interesting and actually um i think it makes a further point why it's cool to become a journalist and um, hopefully some of our listeners are attracted by the job after your 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 good answers here on our questions and um, julian do you have any final question sure regarding the point you just mentioned louis Would you have any tips for young people who would like to get more involved in journalism? I'd say maybe the most important thing is uh, to maybe to talk to people uh, around. Uh, I think, uh, well, for example, I had some uh, personal connections with people who worked, were some somehow related to the media industry. I just talked to people, get some connections and... Uh, Try to find out what uh, opportunities or possibilities there are. I mean, internship programs are a great start. Even if uh, companies aren't explicitly hiring, you know, just drop people an email if you're really interested. And if you're a student, I'd say get involved with student organizations. I actually wrote my first articles as a member of the Society of International Relations here at the University of Tartu. I had the possibility to sort of uh, practice my writing beforehand and write to maybe these outlets who weren't so famous, so well-known as Sesti Bavale. But the articles which I wrote there were sort of a stepping stone to then go on to Sesti to Bavale and write in a large daily newspaper. That's really interesting. And, and I think uh, hopefully some of our listeners um, are now even more motivated to, to get involved in journalism. And I think, um, as you mentioned, you know, Getting involved in youth organizations such as IFAIR um, or getting involved in university journalism can be a first step uh, to, to, to become perhaps some, some, at some point someone like you who publishes on, it, on, on, the, on the front page of newspapers. Um, but I think we slowly have to come to an end of, of the debate, unfortunately. Uh, um, thank you very much for a very rich debate, also for some very good insights from you, Michael, on the current situation in Estonia and your, your job as a, as a freelance journalist. So thank you very much to you that you joined us today. Um, and also thank you to all of our listeners that you listened to us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and we will be back very soon with a new fresh discussion on international affairs. Um, until then, stay safe and goodbye.